all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. From MPB Think Radio, you're listening to a live version of Southern Remedy, where the doctors are always in. I'm Dr. Rick DeShazo, professor of medicine and pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And I brought along a friend, Dr. Claude Harberger, who is a pediatric ENT doctor to help me today. But it's all things considered on Wednesdays. Anything you want to talk about, uh, ENT or anything else, give us a call at 1-877-MPB-RING, 1-877-672-7464, or send us an email at southernremedy at mpbonline.org. We'll be right back with another special feature right after the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The United States Senate is preparing to hold a vote this hour to override a presidential veto of a 9-11 bill. That legislation would allow the families of the victims who were killed in the 2001 terror attacks to sue Saudi Arabia over its alleged role in the violence, claim nearly 3,000 lives. NPR's Elsa Chang reports on the prospects for the bill's passage. The bill cruised through both chambers of Congress without any opposition, but a formal tally was never taken in either chamber. So this veto override vote will be the first time any member will have to go on record supporting or rejecting the bill. Senators in both parties are now acknowledging some concerns. If the U.S. allows Americans to sue other governments for aiding or financing terrorism on U.S. soil, the worry is other countries might drag U.S. government officials or members of the military into similar lawsuits in foreign courts. And that could expose the U.S. to tremendous liability. But the measure has been billed as a way to help 9-11 families. It's still tremendously popular and expected to become law. Elsa Chang, NPR News, the Capitol. Former President Jimmy Carter is joining the long list of influential global leaders in recounting Shimon Peres' contributions to peace. The former Israeli leader and Nobel laureate has passed away at the age of 93. In a statement released today, Carter called Peres a man of great courage. Dutch investigators say their positive Malaysia Airlines flight MH17 was shot down by a Russian-made missile launched from separatist-controlled territory in eastern Ukraine. Nearly 300 people were killed on the flight that left Amsterdam headed for Kuala Lumpur in July of 2014. Terry Schultz reports on today's release of the preliminary results of a joint criminal investigation. The head of the Dutch-led criminal investigative team says there's no question the deadly Buk missile that destroyed MH17 was brought in from Russia. And the launcher, minus one rocket, then went back to Russia. Dutch investigator Wilbert Polisson says evidence taken from photographs, social media, eyewitnesses and phone intercepts has also made clear where the rocket was set off. Paulison is heard here through an interpreter. At the time of the launch, this territory was controlled by pro-Russian fighters. 
The joint investigation team includes members from Australia, Belgium, Malaysia and Ukraine and has been gathering evidence for two years. Investigators say they've also got a list of suspects but aren't revealing identities before they're ready to prosecute. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz. The ranking Democrat on the House Judiciary Committee says intelligence officials have reached a clear consensus that the Russian government was behind the hack of the Democratic National Committee's emails earlier this year. Congressman John Conyers of Michigan urged the FBI today to investigate whether the Russians are trying to influence the outcome of the U.S. presidential election. U.S. stocks lower with the Dow off more than 20 points at 18,206. This is NPR News. Many schools across southeastern China are closed and flights are canceled after typhoons slammed into the coast. NPR's Anthony Kuhn reports from Beijing that the storm has killed several people and injured hundreds more. Typhoon Megi came ashore in the city of Quanzhou in Fujian province, packing winds of up to about 75 miles per hour. Several buildings collapsed in Quanzhou, killing one person. Knee-deep water flooded the streets of the provincial capital, Fuzhou. Authorities evacuated around 120,000 people from the storm's path. On Taiwan, the storm knocked out power to around 4 million people. Authorities are still on alert for possible landslides. At its height, the typhoon was 310 miles in diameter. It has since weakened to a tropical storm, and it's expected to fizzle out as it moves inland. Anthony Kuhn, NPR News, Beijing. Months after Martin Shkreli infuriated a bipartisan congressional panel with smirks and yawns and some sarcasm and declining to explain why he chose to hike the price of a life-saving drug by 5,000 percent, he is now giving the people a chance to sock it to him, literally. The pharmaceutical executive is raffling himself on eBay to the highest bidder who wants to take a swing at him. Shkreli says he is confident there will be a fair number of takers. The pharma mogul says the money will go to an employee's son who was diagnosed with cancer. Turning to U.S. stocks, we see them lower. The Dow losing 24 points. It's at 18,205. S&P's down five, and the Nasdaq is off 13 points. This is NPR News. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Independent Sector, holding its annual conference for over 1,000 changemakers and charitable sector leaders this November in Washington, D.C. Learn more at newfrontiers2016.org. And the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Terry Gross. Listen to Fresh Air weekdays at 3 on MPB Think Radio. You're listening to Southern Remedy with Dr. Rick DeShazo on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to southernremedy at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Welcome back to Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Rick DeShazo, professor of medicine and pediatrics at UMC. And every Wednesday at this time, it is my pleasure to visit with you and try to answer any medical questions you have. And I bring along some help frequently when there's something exciting and interesting going on. And I've brought two folks along today, but it's whatever you want to talk about. And we have lines open, and the best time to get on those lines is right now. We're at one eight seven seven mpb ring one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four, 
and that's Southern Remedy at mpbonline.org. I've got uh, a special guest, Dr. Claude Harberger, who is a Mississippi native who uh, went off to specialize in children's otolaryngology uh, at Children's Hospital in Birmingham and is back on our faculty. And I have lots of things I want to ask you about, uh, Dr. Harberger, but they don't count. It's what the audience wants to hear. I want to know about how you tell whether uh, kids are having delayed uh, speech problems uh, because uh, all the boys in my family are late and all the girls are early and uh, talking, uh, grandkids. I want to. I also need to know about ears and all those tubes y'all are putting in. How come y'all put in so many tubes? <laughs> yeah, that's the most common surgical procedure done in the country right now. Is um, that right? Yeah, uh, well over half a million children have tubes every year. Are there data showing it works? Yeah, there's data showing that it improves quality of life um, and that it's also cost-effective for children who are having a lot of ear infections who are always having to go to the pediatrician and get put on antibiotics. Okay, so if you want to know more about ears, noses, and throats, uh, what about all those TNAs, tonsillectomies and adenoidectomies? Uh, Every grandkid I've got, somebody's wanted to take their tonsils out. Yeah, there's uh, several reasons to get your tonsils and adenoid out. Um, We used to do most of them for strep, but these days we're doing more and more tonsillectomies and adenoidectomies for snoring and sleep apnea. So little kids can have sleep apnea? Yeah, when you hear sleep apnea, you think of adults who are maybe overweight, Uh um, but a lot of children have sleep apnea, and it's treated very effectively with removing tonsils and adenoids. We've got a lot of overweight children, too, but that's another issue we can talk about. So there you go. you got an expert sitting up here. If you want to talk about that or toenail fungus or whatever's on your mind, give us a call. Where our lines are open. We're at one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. That's one eight seven seven mpb ring And we'll take your call in just a minute. But I wanted to bring in another expert who has some exciting news and that's dr patricia stewart hey dr stewart hey there listen i was so excited uh about hearing about all these new quote biologics that you have to treat bad asthma that i thought the people in mississippi need to know about this because it's a sort of a breakthrough sort of thing and I'm not really sure even the doctors are aware of this. So what is a biologic and what do you use them for? So a biologic medication is something called a monoclonal antibody, which is just the type of medicine, the way that it's manufactured. Um, And usually they're injections. Sometimes they're infusions. And we have several new ones that are on the market now to treat various asthma and other allergic conditions. Biologics are something that your listeners might be familiar with when they watch the TV and see commercials for a lot of different rheumatoid arthritis medicines. Mm-hmm. Those are heavily advertised. Things like Humira. That's right. That's mm-hmm. right. And so we have our own set of biologic medications that are available for asthma and allergic conditions with two brand new ones that are out just this year that help people with a specific type of asthma, usually an allergic asthma. But asthma is not just one disease like we've thought for a long time. There are various types of asthma. And so the same inhalers um, can be used to treat a lot of patients. But once you identify what type of asthma somebody has, 
we now have access to these new biologic medicines that may work in one person's asthma, but not in another person's asthma. Can you get off all of those stupid inhalers that I, I use for my asthma and hate it <clears throat> with these new medicines? Sometimes people can come off of their inhalers. Sometimes they need the combination of this biologic-type medicine with their inhaler to finally get them the relief that they need from their asthma. Mm-hmm. It's fitting that you all have Dr. Harburger on today because there's such a connection between allergic and sinus uh, problems and allergies in general with asthma. We see that up to 50% of people with asthma have some sort of allergic or sinusitis problem. And so he and I share the same type of patient a lot. So So you know Harburger. Can you vouch for him as a competent and caring physician? He's very competent, very caring, and uh, we share a number of patients. I feel better about both of you now. That's right. (laughs) So um, I think that there's exciting things to come in asthma. We've already got these new biologics this year, and there are multiple ones, probably a dozen that are in clinical trials that are being studied. Mm -hmm. And so the face of asthma is really going to change in the future. It's an exciting time. Well, you know, asthma is the second most common cause of school days lost in children uh, after colds. And this is just so exciting because I come from an allergic family. Uh, the listeners have heard all of my maladies, and all of our grandkids have asthma. And uh, so having something new to offer uh, is just fantastic. So that's, right. uh, so that's Dr. Patricia Stewart, an allergist at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, who's been on our program before, and I will vouch for her. She's a good one. So mm-hmm. thank you so much, Dr. Stewart. Thank you. Y'all have a good program today. All right, great. Okay, We're taking okay. anybody's call who'll call us at one eight seven seven mpb ring one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. We're going to Macomb, and we'll go to your house if you give us a call at that number or send us an email at southernremedy at mpbonline.org. Let's go to Carrie in Macomb. Hey, Carrie. Hey, good morning. Thanks for your call. What's on your mind? I'm curious about children being raised um, here in the last, uh, with the advent of the Internet and technology in, let's say, the last decade or so. They uh, are being raised in front of a TV screen and a monitor screen a whole lot. I was wondering, uh, since the increase, we have such an increase, increase in ADD, ADHD, I wonder if that is in part in, by, caused by children under the age of nine in their formative years um, uh, having to shift their focus when they're watching a TV show with all the different commercials and different topics being barraged by all these different topics, if it somehow affects their reasoning ability and their mind so that they have trouble focusing on one subject. As we got it. it. We got it. So do you have a child that uh, you know with this problem? Yes. I, I've noticed some behavior changes in a lot of children um like so many of them are getting prescribed medicines for their ADD. Yeah. I just can't imagine what the cause of that is um, if it's not our, our increased technology and us not handling it right. Yeah. So uh, thank you so much for that call, and let's get some input from Dr. Harburger. The biggest um, biggest concerns I have with uh, from uh, kids' parents uh, that I see about ADD, uh, Dr. Harburger, is 
the issue of taking drugs at a new uh, at a young age and becoming a drug addict that's they always bring that up and the fact that these are stimulant drugs um do you know of any uh, any data to suggest that watching tv uh causes or using a handheld phone is associated with an increased uh, prevalence of uh, ADD? You know, I don't know any studies right off on that. What I will say is that we worry about this from another angle is uh, for parents of young children with more and more people on their smartphones. We are seeing studies where children can have speech delay Mm -hmm. um, because parents aren't talking to their kids as much. Um, and so I think that's something that we're going to see more and more of. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm, I was just looking at uh, the Internet, uh, the medical Internet. I don't see anything that uh, has been uh, published uh, in a credible place so far to suggest that ADD is triggered by screen time. Uh, although I do think a lot of bad things are triggered by excess screen time, including obesity and um interpersonal problems and so forth. So we don't need to incriminate uh, <clears throat> too much screen time for uh, ADD. Uh, there are enough bad things to, to make us want to limit it anyway. Uh, the, the drugs that are being used for this are drugs designed at making kids focus. And all of us know have grandkids or know of kids or grew up with kids who could never concentrate and were moving all the time and just could not focus and frequently were the brightest kids in the class, but they couldn't be still and couldn't compute because they couldn't focus. And we feel like as pediatricians that that all of these kids with these problems need a, a, a medical workup because there are medical issues and problems like uh, an ENT guy uh, handles that can can look like this that aren't this. Yeah, that's true. Um, uh, thyroid, for instance. Yes, thyroid uh, problems in children, and that can be tested for very easily uh, with a blood test. And um, another uh, issue that can cause d- difficulty uh, concentrating and decreased classroom performance would be sleep apnea and sleep disordered breathing in children. Uh, that certainly is not the only cause for ADHD-type symptoms, but in children who aren't getting good quality sleep at night, they can, can struggle in the classroom. All right. Well, thanks for that, and I hope that's at least helpful. And, Carrie, if you want some more information, I have a uh, whole computer loaded with ADD stuff on it that may be helpful. Uh, so feel free to send us an email at southernremedy.mpbonline.org. And we'll take your emails today and also your phone calls at one eight seven seven mpb ring Let's go to Natchez and talk to Kathy. Hey, Kathy. Hi there. How are y'all? Oh, we're good. We appreciate your call. What's on your mind? Okay. The question's about uh, with the tonsils. Uh, I was just having a conversation with a friend of mine yesterday, and she was telling me about one of her grandbabies that when she was younger, she had her tonsils removed because basically, I guess I've been kind of just aware of the thing is your tonsils are there, but when you have a problem with them, that's when they get removed. But she said that she found out with her granddaughter, and her granddaughter is grown now, that when her tonsils were removed, that it caused her to 
have a great uh, lack of vitamin C in her body. So all her life, her doctors have told her to take vitamin C. Mm-hmm. And when she didn't take it, that she had, you know, several problems. So I wanted to hear your comment on that out there. All righty. Thank well, you for your call. Well, the tonsils and the, you know, the adenoid is a type of tissue like the tonsil. It's above the tonsil in the back of the nose. They're, it's an immune structure, and it has a purpose at an early age. It helps the body um, learn what bacteria to fight. And, um, but over time, they can either get too large and cause difficulty breathing, or they can get infected a lot. And uh, our studies show that there's really no adverse immune consequences from removing them. I'm not aware of any vitamin deficiencies that could be seen after removing tonsils and adenoids Mm -hmm. so the big question is uh what are the indications for um removing them a lot of kids have really big tonsils i mean their parents can have them open the mouth and see the things poking out back there and uh but every kid that has big tonsils doesn't need them removed right yeah that's correct so um in kids who are having recurrent strep infections, we generally like to see around seven strep infections over a year or five or six strep infections per year for two years or three, three, three. So three strep infections per year for three years. The reason is that we have fairly good studies that show us that those children will go on to have persistent strep. What you wouldn't want to do is remove tonsils and an adenoid in a child who wouldn't get strep if you hadn't done that. Uh, and so we generally try to, to wait until a child has that many strep infections. And your pediatrician generally knows uh, when to refer you for that. The other um, indication for removing tonsils and adenoid would be for snoring and sleep-disordered breathing. And that's probably why we, the reason why we remove most tonsils these days. So is that just a mechanical problem? Uh, I know when you go to sleep you relax the muscles in your neck and everything becomes automatic and you got those two big blobs in the back of your throat do they just pop in the way of the airway or how does that work yeah it it is a mechanical thing they can become quite large and children's airways aren't as big as adults and so um a fairly large tonsil can cause breathing issues um we're going to grand bay and we're going to your house if you give us a call at one eight seven seven MPB ring, one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. So, do you always take out the adenoids when you take out the tonsils? And what are the adenoids? Because those you can't see those so well, right? They're commonly done together, but not necessarily. Uh, the adenoid is in the back of the nose. You can't see it looking through the nose. Um, symptoms of a large adenoid would be. Constant runny nose, constant nasal congestion, snoring, um, and uh, a hyponasal voice because some of our speech sounds are supposed to come out of our nose. Um, A large adenoid also could predispose someone to having recurrent ear infections and ear issues. Um, Removing the adenoid um, is generally a fairly painless procedure. Uh, not so with the tonsils. You can have um, several days of snoreness. And so sometimes if the adenoid is large, we will sometimes remove the adenoid first before we'll think about removing the tonsils, particularly in very young children. Hmm. 
Very good points. You're listening to Doctor, our special guest, Dr. Claude Harberger, who is an, a super specialist. He's an otolaryngologist who specialized in children's ENT problems, ear, nose, and throat problems, by doing additional training. And I asked him to come up because it's school time and everybody's getting infected. And all the doctors are looking in everybody's throat and saying they need their tonsils out. So we wanted to make sure that you had some information on that, hearing, speech, sleep apnea, or whatever other ENT stuff is on your mind, or anything else. So give us a call at one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Let's go to Grand Bay. Hey, Rick. Hey, Rick. How you doing? I like your name, I, man. I've been looking into uh, some stuff about this uh, this organization called the Lung Institute. They have an office in Tampa and an office up there in uh, Music Town. And they do uh, stem cell repl- uh, therapy for uh, lung problems. And from what I'm reading here, on the, they can either do it venous or they can do it bone marrow. What they do is take the blood out and they separate the stem cells and uh, put them back in directly where it can do good. This is over a three-day period. And then you uh, they give you follow-up after that. Mm-hmm. And I've read some of the testimonials. It's like, like God gave them a brand new set of lungs. Right. They couldn't even change their clothes, but now they're riding bicycles, you know? Right. Have you heard anything about anything like that? Yeah, before? we've heard a lot about stem cells, and uh, maybe Dr. Harb- Harberger can add to my thoughts about that. Stem cells are now regularly used for people with uh, malignancies, in particular <clears throat> malignancies of the bone marrow um leukemia, lymphoma, and the like, and certain immune deficiencies. So these are used regularly uh, in academic health centers uh, like ours for several diseases. There are also some orthopedic problems that they're now being used in. I actually had a patient who had a very, very good response to stem cell therapy for a knee problem, but the, the data... Uh, is not solid on a lot of things, including the lung piece. And uh, the problem is is that the insurance uh, companies will not pay for things that have not been shown with controlled trials to be effective. Yeah, and that's the case in our field as well. Stem cells are being explored for um, helping people who have scarring on their vocal cords and also to help to restore hearing. But at this point, um, those things are either research or experimental and, and, and no one is actually performing them outside of trials. So the, the, what we are doing now and what most academic centers are doing right now for people with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease that have respiratory failure is lung reduction surgery which can be done endoscopically that is you take out the blebs that are uh, scooching down the remaining good airways surgically or lung transplants and those are frequently done uh, as part of a heart lung transplant or just isolated lung transplants they are the more challenging of the solid organ transplants that we're doing so uh, let me just tell you uh, uh, what I think you should do if you're interested in this uh, would be to contact that facility and ask them to send you uh, the publications 
from the scientific literature on what they're doing, showing their efficacy, uh, and then discuss, take that to your local doctor, have him or her look at that, and then walk through whether that will be something of interest to you. Um, Of course, the best way to prevent a stem cell lung transplant is not to smoke. We still have lots of people smoking in Mississippi, and we need to get them to stop doing that. So um, we're going to take a really quick break here and come back and go to Tupelo in Cleveland and to your place. Uh, If you'll give us a call at 1-877-672-7464. It's Southern Remedy. Dr. Rick here with Dr. Claude. And we're talking about all kinds of ear, nose, and throat problems or whatever else is on your mind. We'll be right back. Give us a call. comes from Kyle Wynn & Associates, an estate planning and elder law firm hosting estate planning and nursing home asset protection planning seminars in Jackson and Vicksburg throughout the month of September. Details at kyle-wynn.com. Coming up this week on MPB's At Issue... Texting and driving. It's a problem across the nation. Has the cell phone below the windows, which makes it even worse because you're having to look down. Traffic crashes are causing thousands of deaths. That could cost not just your life, but anyone else's life. Mississippi has a law banning texting and driving, but is the law working? Are your officers writing tickets for texting and driving? No. We take a closer look at texting and driving on At Issue this Friday at 7.30 p.m. on MPB TV. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. You're listening to Southern Remedy with Dr. Rick DeShazo on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to southernremedy at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Hey, welcome back to Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Rick here with Dr. Claude. We're talking about all kinds of head problems, ear, nose, and throat, and especially in kids. And we've got a couple of calls, but we've got plenty of room for yours. If you call us at one eight seven seven mpb ring Here's a quick email before we go to Tupelo in Georgia. If a child has ear tubes... When is it okay for parents to just start applying drops such as Ciprodex at home? And when is it necessary for them to come in and see the doctor? In other words, if you got the tubes in and goop starts coming out, uh, how do you know whether you need to go to the doctor or so what is a tube and where does it go and what do you do with it? Yeah, an ear tube is a very small piece of plastic. Generally it's one twentieth of an inch. So it's small And the ear tube sits across the eardrum, and it allows an ear infection to drain through the tube. So one of the nice things about tubes is that if a child has an ear infection, they generally don't have any symptoms. So they won't have fever, fussiness, pulling at their ears, not eating well, or or not sleeping well. So the middle ear is actually a closed space. It's a little cup with a 
covered up by the tympanic membrane, the eardrum, and if and there's a drain in the back of it, uh, just like your sink, right, the eustachian tube. That's right, but in some children, that drain doesn't work so well for the first few years of life. It generally uh, begins draining uh, at around three to four years of age, but in the meantime, um, children who are getting a lot of ear infections, and we can talk about the numbers, do better with tubes. As a general um, rule, ear infections have become less common as more and more mothers are breastfeeding, more um, families and children are becoming vaccinated, and fewer people are smoking in the home. But it's the kids in daycare who, who seem to have at least twice the rate of ear infections than other mm, kids. Because they're passing around one virus after another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have, I think all of, our, all of our grandkids have been in daycare, and it's been an issue for all of them. So is there, you know, so, so when do you put eardrops in? Do you need to call your doctor every time goop starts coming out, pus starts coming out of the ear when they have a tube in or what? No, no. If you, in general, you would call the ENT who did the tubes, and that's the nice thing about tubes is that ear infections can generally be treated with antibiotic drops, usually for about 10 days, um, and the drainage should slowly dry up. Okay, so but you should let the doctor know you're fixing to put them in there. Yes. Or the doctor's nurse, mm-hmm. not just do that automatically. Mm-hmm. And I guess the reason for that is where he or she can keep up with how many are, uh, how many are happening to make sure there's not an abscess or something in the ear that would stimulate that. That's right, yeah. In general, you want to make sure the drainage improves over about a week. Okay, good, good. And tell, just, just where people know, how much does it cost and how long does it take? How long does the kid have to be under sedation? For most children, that's a very light anesthetic. Um, generally, we do not start an IV. We use a little bit of, of laughing gas like at a dentist office, and it's a quick recovery. Huh. And how expensive is it? You don't know because you work at the university. Yeah, it's uh, the charge charges range are uh, um, a little over two thousand dollars. So it ain't but, cheap. Is that for each year? No, that's total. Uh, uh, no, you wouldn't necessarily pay that if you had insurance. If you then, bring in more ears, can you get a cheaper price? <laughs> All right, let's go to uh, uh, Raj Ramaj. Hey, Ramaj. Are you with us up in yes. Tupelo? Yes. What's your question? Uh, had a my six-year-old child has had some kind of recurring issue with basically just decreased smell sensation. We've been trying to tease through that mm-hmm. locally, but not making a lot of headway. So, give us a little bit more detail. How do you know the the kid is is having trouble with smelling? And did you say taste too? Something has changed? Well, they were kind of uh, 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 having trouble with just tasting their food the same way. Uh-huh. And, uh, so we're first we're kind of streamlining as, as, a, as a taste issue. Uh, then we um, kind of nailed down that it was more of a smell issue. We started just putting, you know, we put random objects in front of her. Uh-huh. Uh, and she and she has trouble, uh, you know, smelling it and the way we think she should. We've had her seen by ENT here locally, and they, they did some more formal testing, and they're like, yeah, there's definitely kind of a defect there. Uh, but they're kind of they've kind of hit a brick wall as far as uh, what to do next. The source. Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, well, you got the expert here. So what, what does this mean? Yeah, um, taste and smell are strongly associated, and what 
many people perceive as a taste problem is actually a smell problem. There's a lot of reasons why you could lose your sense of smell. The most common would be a viral infection like the common cold, um, a sinus infection. Usually it comes back. Uh, there can be other uh, anatomic causes inside your nose like a septal deviation uh, or polyps. In children with a decreased sense of smell, one of the things we want to ensure that they don't have would be a disease called cystic fibrosis. Um, and so in general, if a child has an issue with smell, it would be very helpful for them to see an ENT as you've already done. Mm-hmm. So, and, and to get a second opinion, if they don't get the question answered. So, um, so I, I presume that little kids can stick stuff up in their nose and that's where I've seen it. All of a sudden they come in with n- n- snotty noses on one side and stuff like that. So any kind of mass, I guess you could have a tumor up there too, right? Yeah, that's certainly more rare in children. Mm-hmm. So what do you do to figure this out? Well, one of the easiest ways is to look. We have some scopes that we can look in the nose and, and look around and make sure that there's nothing blocking a child's ability to breathe. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then in other cases where we can't seem to find a reason, we would think about doing imaging. And there are some syndromes that you can be born with that also can have decreased sense of smell as a part of them, and your mm-hmm. pediatrician would be helpful in so so since Ramage's uh, six-year-old was smelling well and was tasting well and all of a sudden isn't, that means that's an indication for an evaluation. And that evaluation would include rhinoscopy, looking up in the nose, and what else? And CF test, cystic yeah. fibrosis screen. And in more rare cases, we would get an MRI. MRI to look better because back in, there. in in uh, in some cases it can be a central or neurologic problem that children have difficulty smelling. Okay, Ra, uh, Ra, Ramaj, I think you got your answer there. Was that helpful? Say, uh, Dr. Claude, um, uh, you may remember me from uh, from several years past. I used to be president of the Friendly Finder Neighborhood Association back in my Jackson days. So it was good to talk to you. Thank you for your help. And thank you for your call. He's got a big smile. So thanks for identifying yourself. We appreciate it. Let's go to Larry in Georgia. Hey, Larry. Larry, it's your turn. I'm sorry. Thank you so much. Can you all hear me? Absolutely. Okay. Well, Doctor, I want to get your opinions on the pros and cons for a man in the 60s to have a testosterone um, you know, injection program. Um, I, I don't need Viagra. I don't have those issues. But, of course, you know, part of the aging process for men is that your testosterone level goes down and mine has gone down. So, you know, I want to have it for a more satisfying and fulfilling sexual, sexual experience. Okay. On that. Okay. Well, it looks like every man now wants to know his testosterone level, especially if he's uh, uh, single. And uh, so uh, we can measure those levels. And there's two kinds of testosterone deficiency. There's primary and secondary. The primary uh, kind means that your testes just don't make it anymore. And the secondary uh, kind is there's some drug or other uh, medication or other medical problem that is causing the problem. So... We usually measure uh, the total testosterone level in the morning. You always have to have it measured the same time. 
And if it's abnormal, then we do an appropriate uh, examination and decide whether it needs to be replaced. The problem is we have a lot of people with normal testosterone levels that want it. And uh, they can be very persuasive, you know, about wanting it because they use it for muscle building and so forth. And, of course, when you take extra testosterone, you have a lot of problems, behavioral issues, uh, your cholesterol gets all whacked out, and so forth. So we are very, very cautious about when to use that. And uh, and so if you are if you're you're just looking for a greater sexual response, uh, you frequently don't get it. Um, that that is it's not the most effective way to improve uh, your orgasm or any other part of your. Uh, sexual behavior, but frequently we will try it because we don't like to give it on the long term if we don't have to because of the complications, especially in people with a history of heart disease. So I hope that's helpful, Larry. And if you want more information, just send me an email and we can certainly send you some more information about this. But you're not alone. A lot of people are asking this question. And that's the starting place is to get your total testosterone level uh, obtained in the morning by your your doctor. All right, let's go to Wayne in Meridian. Hey, Wayne. Good morning. How are y'all? We're doing great. We appreciate your call. What's your question? Um, two issues. Uh, where does your mind go when I uh, tell you I had a sharp pain underneath my right shoulder blade that was not explained by any lifting or exercise? Okay. And and two. Uh, along with the year is uh, on camping. I ha- upon camping, I had a, a bad experience with a bug that got into my left ear, and it was doing a tap dance that, that woke me up abruptly, and I thought it was trying to get out the other ear. <laughs> Did it? But, uh, Did it come out the other ear? There's a great right, uh, TV program <laughs> right now. Have you seen that program where these ants get in people's ear? They look like ants. Some kind of bugs get, and their brains blow up. Oh my God! You got to watch that program. It's amazing. I think that's it's on. Bring back nightmares for Mike. Yeah, well, that's a, it's a PTSD stimulating movie. Uh, okay, so we'll take those two questions. Let me ask you about your shoulder chest pain. Is that recurrent or was that one episode? That was uh, one episode. I had a full uh, uh, nuclear stress test done on my heart a few years ago, and this this was something that was recent. Okay. Um, On my shoulder blade. So let me just tell you a little bit about how to differentiate uh, cardiac, heart attack, chest pain from other forms of chest pain. Uh, One of the first things is what your family history is. If you have a family history of heart attacks, then your risk is significantly increased. If you're overweight or have diabetes or hypertension, especially high blood pressure, especially uh, if it is uh, not well controlled, that puts you in a risk group. And uh, if uh, you are old and a male, that puts you in a risk group, no matter what your genetics uh, or others are. So um, so that's uh, smoking, of course, is another big factor. So if you don't have any of those risk factors, uh, the the probability that you're having a heart attack is very low uh, unless you're older. So um, the characteristic pain in a male 
uh, is really quite different than that in a female. Females can frequently have no pain, a feeling of tiredness, shortness of breath, uh, and the like, just not feeling right, whereas men tend to get pressure feelings uh, over uh, their anterior, the front of their chest. It may or may not go into their arm, and it does not go away quickly in just seconds like uh, the one that you had. So I think you had a musculoskeletal episode. It may be that one of the ligaments in your shoulder got entrapped uh, with a... uh, a structure in your shoulder that certainly happened to me of course everything happens to me i have bad luck uh but uh but that's what i think's going on and i think you should you did the right thing you saw your doctor you had a stress test and it didn't cardiac so i think you ought to forget it and if it occurs again then uh perhaps uh you could uh let let your doctor know about it quickly where if there is a musculoskeletal problem, you could be examined. So I hope that's helpful, and we appreciate your call. What about the bug-in-the-ear deal? Um, So a bug-in-the-ear can be killed by placing mineral oil or olive oil into the ear canal. We generally tell people to avoid sticking tools into their ear, uh, like Q-tips or Or turpentine, which is one of the famous things around here for people to use so mineral oil or olive oil Mm -hmm. Um, and then a lot of times bugs can be flushed out um, by primary care physicians for those that can't um, we could certainly remove them very easily in in the in the ent office what what are the usual bugs i know the roaches for some reason like getting people's ears yeah what what other gets in there uh we see all sorts of bugs roaches are are certainly the most common and uh we tend to see a lot more roaches in children who are coming from um poor socioeconomic backgrounds um whose families necessarily can't afford to have their homes terminated uh-huh. so um uh what's the what's the the most unusual thing you've ever pulled out of anybody's ear <laughs> a roach on each side are you bilateral roaches yes Oh, my goodness. That makes me crazy. Yeah. Okay, so let's just talk about lavage of the nose and lavage of the ear. Uh, now you can go over the counter and um, and, and get these Neomed nasal lavage kits, and you can get a Neomed. I don't have no stock in that company. There are other people that make them. Uh, I just happen to remember that one, uh, so I'm not advertising them. But these these really saline squeeze bottle things for your ear, if you have earwax, and nobody's asked about that, and about 50 people want to know about it. So what about lavaging your ears or your nose? The ears you don't necessarily have to do. The ear actually flushes itself out naturally. Um, and so any earwax that you see kind of in the bowl of the ear is fair game to wipe away with the bath cloth. Um it, Q-tips can unfortunately drive the wax deeper into the ear, and so we we uh, tell most people to we tell people to avoid Q-tips. If and anything, right? I mean, toothpicks. People put all kinds of crazy things in their ears. Yeah, tweezers. Yeah. I've seen people come in with cuts with tweezers. Don't put stuff in your ears, right? Mm-hmm. Let your doctor do that. Yeah, uh, and as far as saline in the nose, that's very helpful. Most. Um, most well, well, wait a second. You didn't tell people that have chronic ear- earwax how not to come see you. You're holding back on us. Can't you put eardrops or something that you get from the pharmacy or something if you got wax issues? Yeah, there's a number of over-the-counter drops. Um, what do you recommend? 
Uh, the most common is, is a product called Devrox. And the idea behind those is that for people with very hard or dry earwax, they soften it. And it, it just lets the ears do what they naturally do, which is flush the earwax out on their own. So how do you use those correctly? Do you uh, put them in at night or are you to go in the put them in there and go in the shower? And whoa, whoa. You can use an eyedropper and just put a few drops in uh, a few times a week. It doesn't have to be every day. With cotton to keep it in there or what? Um, cotton plug or just to put them in there? You just put them in there. Okay. One of the biggest problems I have is kids getting... Uh, external ear problems because they're swimming or taking showers and they never dry the inside of their ears. Uh, are you supposed to dry the inside of your ears? You don't have to. Probably the best um, preparation to do it if you wanted to would be a have-to-have mixture of rubbing alcohol and white vinegar. And you can just put a few drops in your ear after you swim. And, and that helps the water in your ear canal evaporate. So you take rubbing alcohol and vinegar equal parts. Yeah, and just put a few drops. And put drops it in a martini it. mixer and shake it up <laughs> and uh, put uh, two drops in there. Yeah, just a few drops. You can use an eyedropper. You're the only ENT guy I've ever heard say put rubbing alcohol in the ear. But I know you all are starting to say that now. You don't do that by its full strength, right? You don't put rubbing alcohol in your ear unless it's diluted down with something, right? Right, and you certainly wouldn't, wouldn't want to do that if you had a hole in your eardrum or if you had a tube because it it uh, would be a bit uncomfortable. <laughs> okay, good, great. We're going to be right back with Dr. Harberger and you uh, to take your call after this very quick break. Catch up on past episodes and hear any of the MPB programs you've missed on the MPB Public Radio app. Available on iTunes and Google Play. Listen live to MPB Think Radio and MPB Music Radio. Search MPB Public Radio. This is Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Support for MPB comes from the Pediatric and Congenital Heart Center of Alabama at Children's of Alabama, a cardiovascular care center for children in Birmingham, Alabama. More at childrensal.org slash heart. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. You're listening to Southern Remedy with Dr. Rick DeShazo on MPB Think Radio. We're glad to take your calls at 1-877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can always email your comments and questions to southernremedy at mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio, Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Hey, welcome back to another live version of Southern Remedy. I'm Dr. Rick here with Dr. Harberger, the ENT specialist. And we're talking about all things considered, including a lot of ear, nose, and throat stuff. So let's go to Bill and Fulton. Hey, Bill. Hey. Uh, hey, I'm having a lot of sinus uh, issue, and it's a recurring problem. Uh-huh. You know, I noticed that, uh, you know, my ears uh, it stopped up and stuff. Sometimes I have pressure. It feels like it's on the top of my feet. And I know it's my sinuses, and I know it's when the temperature's around 80, you know, high 70s. Uh, when it gets really hot, it seems to subside and stuff like that. And I take Zyrtec and a couple of other things. But, uh, you know, I've had a couple of sinus headaches where, you know, it feels like I'm just pushing my teeth out of my skull, you know. Um, but uh, I noticed that, you know, I get clogged up a lot. I use a CPAP, too, and I, and that's cut down on a lot of the filtering. 
but um, I'm still, uh, is there anything else I can be doing? I mean, I have a neti pot or. Okay. Those are good questions. Let, let me ask you one other question that'll be helpful for Art Harbor. Do you have uh, seasonal uh, sneezing, itchy eyes, and runny nose in the spring and fall? Yeah, definitely, yeah. Okay, so you got that. And have you ever had sinus surgery? Never had sinus surgery. Good. Uh, I thought about it. Uh, I had a guy scope me, and he said that I had a slightly deviated septum. I don't know what slightly deviated means, but uh, that, you know, I breathe out of one side of my nose better. Than that the means other. you don't need to have surgery, that's for sure. Okay, yeah. so let's uh, let's get the expert. So this is a common problem. We're right in the middle of the ragweed season now, so everybody's plugged up and hoarse and blowing mucus out of their nose so and their ears are stopped up so what do you do yeah it sounds like your problem is more of a condition called chronic sinusitis um and that's treated a bit differently than typical acute sinus infections which tend to be bacterial um using a neti pod or saline spray daily is very helpful um, the other thing, and that's with salt water, right? Not with tap water. That's right. That's with salt water. So if you get the Neomed lavage kit or the neti pot, you can get it all the drug stores. You're supposed to get the saline packets and sometimes it's hard to get the saline packets, but they have those at target. If you can't find them in the drug department, they have, you can buy a box the way the Neomed is sold which is a squeegee bottle which we use for all of our sinus patients now pretty much with saline it comes with a limited number of packets and they don't sell the replacement packet because they want to sell you another squeegee bottle that's a ripoff so you can get the little saline packets uh from uh stores or you can make up your own salt solution but you have to have the salt in there or it screws up your nose right yeah that's right there's a number of recipes online Good. All right. So lavage is helpful. What are the indications for using lavage? Uh, Difficulty breathing through your nose, um, congestion, uh, decreased sense of smell. The nose is actually a filter uh, for the air. And so a lot of dust um, and particles can get trapped in the nose and it can cause chronic inflammatory issues. um, And so the lavage helps wash that out. Um, The other thing that's very helpful, helpful both for allergic rhinitis and chronic sinusitis, would be an intranasal steroid. And those are over-the-counter now. Uh, so things like Flonase and Nasonex. And those can be used once a day, and they're um, one of the, the most helpful things out there for chronic sinusitis. Are those like tes- testosterone, and they make you have high blood pressure and diabetes? No, there's um, the, there's very little systemic absorption of those, and so they're they're generally safe. Um, uh, unlike by, uh, unlike systemic air steroids, which have a lot of side effects and mm-hmm. issues. So he could get something like Flonase or Nasacort or the Fleticazone and, and so forth that are over the three of them over the counter now, and uh, and wash his nose out once or twice a day, and then follow that with a nose spray. That's right, yeah. Uh, you generally want to use the nose spray after the irrigation so that you don't wash the nose spray out. And when you put the nose spray in your nose, you want to go out towards the eyeball and whatever side you're on. That just helps direct it towards the sinuses a little bit better. So if you're putting it in the right side of your nose, you go to the left eyeball or to the right eyeball? <laughs> to the right eyeball. To the right eyeball. Okay, good. Well, it's always helpful to know which eyeball is the one that's the target. Okay, now let's talk about He has also brought up CPAP. CPAP rhinitis is an epidemic, 
because so many men are overweight and or have big necks from lifting weights or being overweight that uh, they start snoring and they stop breathing and they get these CPAP machines, which basically keep their nose open at night, which is great. But they are blowing cold air down there, so it, the nose doesn't like that, right? Yeah, that's right. The nose tries to keep up. It, it warms and humidifies the air so that when by the time the air gets to your lungs, it's already humid and moist. And so if you're blowing cold, dry air into your nose, the nose has a lot of work to do. And the the turbinates in the nose are kind of like the air filters, and they can get quite large in, in patients on CPAP. And so there are some things that if you're having difficulty using your CPAP device and is at a high pressure that we can do to improve that, things like a the nasal steroid spray would be the place to start, but um, some patients need um, things like a septoplasty or inferior turbinate reduction. Uh, and and I've noticed you're using a lot of uh, uh, reservoirs that are heated uh, with the CPAPs. Now, they almost always come with these reservoirs that you put water in to heat it where it's moist and warm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And we're fortunate um, at the university to have a sleep specialist who that's all she does is work with patients on, with CPAP issues and, and difficulty using CPAP. Great. So uh, so I think to summarize, uh, so far as your nose is concerned, if you have seasonal allergic rhinitis uh, the with sneezing, itchy eyes, and runny nose, using uh, Zyrtec is a good place to start, but what is more effective is using a topical nasal steroid. It's been shown in controlled trials to be more effective than antihistamines alone. Antihistamine should be the second stop. Nasacort or other courts, and there are a lot of generics now uh, over the counter, and they have good instructions on them, are, are a place to start. And with your CPAP, you need to have somebody look in your nose and make sure that it's not really inflamed. Uh, from using cold, dry air, and you might, if you're not, if you don't have a heater on your CPAP machine, that might be something to consider. Okay, well, thanks for those uh, very helpful suggestions. Let's go to Jake in Meridian. Hey, Jake. Hey, Doc. What's uh, happening? I'm not a doctor, and I know I'm going to be on thin ice, but I heard your testosterone uh, advice, and it sounded like it came out of a classic textbook. And um, I might just say, you know, if in today's world there's a lot of use of it, and if it's tailored to specific people, I'm not sure uh, that all those side effects are coming up. And, uh, you know, a lot of the doctors who just say, nope, nope, no, they drive all these guys into the black market, and I think that's really where your your problems come. Yeah, and I see a lot of those guys too, Jake, uh, who have, you know, are looking around for somebody to give them the the reason that I said what I said was that the NIH actually stopped their study uh, on testosterone replacement because people started having uh, adverse effects. So I think you have to be careful. If you if you have low levels, then it's a reasonable thing, but certainly not for for normal levels. Listen, I want to thank Dr. Uh, Claude Harberger and our special guest, uh, our other special guest this morning. Southern Remedies, a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting, is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Our producer is the famous uh, football expert, uh, Jay White. And we'll be back same time, same place next week. Or you can hear us Wednesday, our program on Sunday at 6 a.m. It's been great to be with you. See you again 
next week, same time, same place. Thanks, Dr. Claude. This forecast is underwritten by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Mississippi. Information on how to make good health a family affair.